love started with one guy who knew that as Christians, we all share this common calling that is to serve other people, and uh, that, that we as Christians, we have to have this mission that we're on, and uh, this guy just wasn't sure how to make that happen. He wanted to serve the people that he lived with, and, and he worshiped in that community, and um, so he kind of got this small group of men together, and they said, hey, how can we make this happen? And so they decided once a month, like you saw in the video, just go to the laundromat and, and really just pay for people's laundry, or, or if they will let you even help them fold their laundry, and uh, so they started doing this, and you kind of heard some of their story there. And, and what these guys would tell you is that really this is not about laundry at all. It is really about serving other people so that we can show them the gospel that we say we believe in, so that we can show them that we live for Christ, that Christ has made a difference in our life. And the truth is that regardless of, of where you're at or what your stage of life you're in, if you claim the name of a Christian, then you have a calling to serve. Now, our callings look very different. For some of us, our calling is to serve uh, within the church. For some of us, our calling is to serve with outside of these walls. And for some of us, uh, our calling to serve is very specific. It's, it's a specific role or an office within the church. And this morning, like I've already told you, we're going to prepare for ordination for one of those uh, who has a specific calling to ministry, a specific calling to serve uh, within the role of a deacon. So I want to make sure that we kind of understand what a deacon is and what a deacon does and what their calling is. And so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and look at Acts chapter 6 with me uh, to see what this role of this office of a deacon is and what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and so Acts chapter 6 really starts this role and this idea of serving within this special uh, position that we have. And so we're going to read Acts chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 7, um, and then we'll walk through the text together. So Acts chapter 6, verse 1 says, In those days, as the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters. And I'm going to pause right there. Normally I don't pause at this point, all right? But I'm going to pause there and tell you that is not the best translation of what this is actually in the Greek, all right? Normally, um, I'm a big fan of the Holman Christian Standard, but in this case, they have messed this one up. I'll just be honest with you. A better translation would say it's not right for us um, to give up preaching the gospel to, to serve tables, is what the last two words of verse 2 should say. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Uh, verse 3 reads on, says, Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, who we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry. The proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurius, and Nachnar, and Timon, and Pyramans, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Finally, verse 7. So the preaching about God flourished. The number of disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for, God, just this opportunity, God, just the, even the privilege to speak your name. God, to speak your name over every situation in our life, over the dark times and over the great times. God, to speak your name over every enemy that comes our way. God, to speak your name over our families, over this family of believers and this body of believers. God, we thank you for an opportunity to speak the name of Jesus so freely and so boldly. 
because of what you have done for us. God, we thank you that you weren't content leaving us in the sin that we chose, but instead you chose to offer us another route. And so, God, I pray this morning that as we work through this text, as we pray this morning that, that we work through this specific role of being a deacon, God, I pray that we're reminded that while this is a specific role for a specific task, the application is for all of us. God, that we are all called to serve in some way, shape, or form. And so, God, I pray that you are teaching us through your word, but, God, that also you are preparing our hearts to do what we have called, we're asked to do in God, and that is to live out the gospel each and every day in a different way. And so, God, I pray that you speak, and I pray that we listen. God, I pray that we are transformed by the words that you have spoken, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Many of you probably know the famous author, Ernest Hemingway, and uh, you may not know that Ernest had uh, a younger brother named Clarence, right? And Clarence, um, in 1964, he got tired of the rules of human government, right? Like, like uh, he, some of you might can uh, uh, kind of associate with that, but he just got tired of following the rules, and he really got tired of, of paying taxes. So he decided he was going to create his own kingdom, and so he built an 8-foot by 30-foot floating platform, right? So he built this platform out of bamboo, and he, he put it off in the ocean, and he took it seven miles um, off the coast of Jamaica, and then he dropped a Ford engine block down in the ocean, and that was the anchor to hold his island in place, right? And so Hemingway bragged to reporters who would come and want to interview him, and he would brag about this. He said, I can stand on the platform, I can walk around it. I can salute the flag, all of which I do periodically. And there are no taxes here. This is the part that some of you may agree with. He says, because taxes are for people who are not smart enough to start their own country. And so he started his own country just to avoid paying taxes. And, and he was so convinced that this was going to work. And his kingdom was small and it was just enough for him. It was one person. But it didn't last very long because about two years after he started this project, a, a group of fishermen were coming through the area and they just saw this floating island out there. And so they decided they needed some extra wood. So they went and started taking chunks of his floating island away. Um, and so they grabbed some of the wood and took off with it and what they didn't steal was so badly damaged from the underneath that when a storm came up not too long after that, the whole thing sank to the bottom. All right? So there his island was, there his kingdom was, at the bottom of the ocean. And so what Hemingway kind of learned the hard way was you know, that, that you may can build whatever you want to, but sometimes it takes more than one person to be able to do what you need to do. Right? What he really needed was other people on his island that could help him fend off the fishermen. Other people on the island that could help him maintain his island. So that when he was checking the top looked good, somebody could be underneath making sure the bottom was good. And so sometimes when we have these ideas that if we're not careful, uh, things like maintenance get neglected. Things like um, making sure protection uh, gets neglected. And when those things get neglected... The whole thing sinks to the bottom. And when we neglect these certain things, there's a problem there. And it happens in ministry sometimes, too. You see, if we fail to maintain all that we should be doing in ministry, things start to fall apart. And one of the biggest things we find is that any church, any ministry that relies on one person to do everything is going to find itself at the bottom of the ocean. It is never going to work. It is going to sink every single time. And so God didn't design churches to function this way. He didn't design ministries to function this way. And so we're going to see in Acts chapter 6 uh, that there were these folks that were designated. They had this role of filling in these gaps. Right? And these were the deacons that we're going to talk about. And so this early role of the deacon was to be served. To, to fill in all the places that the, the other people could not do. To come in and fix these gaps and fill in these gaps. And so I want you to look with me in verse 1 
this great thing that's going on in the early church as we see the role of the deacons. In verse 1 it says, In those days, as the number of disciples was multiplying. So notice it wasn't just adding. It wasn't like, hey, just a couple extra people showed up today. It was multiplying. It was growing very quickly. And, and any time the Word of God is spreading like this, any time a church is growing, Satan cannot stand it. And so he's going to do everything within his power to stop the progress of the church. He's done it for thousands of years. Any time a church starts growing, he's going to do something to try to stop that. And so we continue reading on verse 1 um, and see what Satan does. In verse 1 he says, There arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So this is the weapon that Satan uses in those days in the very early church. And also this is the weapon that, that he uses still today. And it's called this thing called, it's this thing called division. Right? And so we won't go into the details, but what I need you to know about the early church, it was consisting of two groups, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Right? And, and like I said, we won't go into the details. I just need you to know that these are, are Christians who came to their Christian faith by different routes. Right? So this one group has a different background. They have different traditions. They speak a different language. And you have this other group that came to the Christian faith from a different background, different faith, different uh, uh, language that they spoke. And they're all working together, right? Except they are still, understandably, very different, right? If I look out over this church, and I don't know if there's 120 of you here, the truth is there's 120 different backgrounds that you came to the faith with. Some of them may be similar to somebody else, but somebody may be very different than somebody else, right? You may came to faith as a child. You may came to faith as a 35-year-old or a 40-year-old. And so the way you bring your traditions and the way you come to faith kind of influences that a little bit. And so here's these two groups that are different because they came to faith differently. They have the same faith. They're all Christians, but they have these different backgrounds that they came to. And so as the apostles are trying to work through working out the early church, one of the things they did was they cared for the widows. And so the widows were in both of these groups. Both of these groups, the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, um, they both had widows. And so they were devoted to working, um, the, the working of the church. And these widows were probably ladies who uh, were very devout in their faith. The problem was they didn't have any legal protection. And so if a lady's husband died, then normally her children would take care of her. But you have a problem if she outlives her kids or if her children do not do their responsibility and take her in because she cannot inherit the land. She cannot inherit the property. So who does she fall to? The church. The church takes on the responsibility of, of taking care of her. And so these men, uh, these apostles, are, are trying to take care of all of these ladies and all these ones who have come to faith. And some of them have been kicked out of their family because they became Christians. Some of them, their children kicked them out because they became Christians. And so uh, all of this is going on. And so there's a little bit of overwhelming of the apostles at this point because they're trying to preach and they're trying to pray and they're trying to do all this other stuff. And they're continuing to serve these widows, which is a great thing. right? And then in verse 2, we see that they, they kind of reach this conclusion that that we're not the answer to everything. Right? Because what happens is one of the groups says, hey, listen, our widows are being overlooked. And, and uh, there's nothing in the text that says they're mad about it. There's nothing in the text that says that this, they think this is intentional. They just point out a difference, right? which is a lesson for all of us. If you see something that you think is not right, you don't necessarily get mad about it. You don't start accusing people about it. You just simply point it out to somebody who can make a difference. right? You don't go gossip about it. We talked about that in the book of Proverbs already. You go to somebody who can possibly be part of the solution. And that's what these guys did. They went to the folks that could possibly be part of the solution, the apostles, and they said, listen, things are, are just not adding up. We want to make sure that everybody is equal 
in this. And so in verse 2, the apostles come up with this solution. In verse 2, it says, The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters. And again, like I told you earlier, that's not a good translation. Uh, Basically, it would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to serve tables. That's the actual Greek word there is is, um, diakonos, which is where we get our, our English word for deacon. It literally means to serve. In this case, it actually is serving tables. This is what a waiter or a waitress does. Okay, So modern sense, you, some of you can go out to eat. This is uh, your waiter or waitress is a deaconess. They are serving your table. Right? That's what they do. And so a deacon is to be appointed over a certain business, and their business is simply that. You are to serve. And you're not to serve the king. You're not to serve the greatest. You're not to serve the leaders. You are to serve the widows who cannot serve themselves. You're to serve and to make sure that they have the food they need to survive. And this allows the apostles to devote themselves to the teaching and the preaching of God's word. So there's, there's nothing that will hold the apostles back. And the disciples can do what they need to do. And so that everybody can continue in this ministry together. Right? And so this is the solution. The solution is not that the apostles do everything. Well, let's let's try to add more to it. The solution is we find other people who can fill this role of a servant so the apostles can do what they need to do. Dr. Benjamin Murky of Southeastern Seminary wrote this. He says, based on the New Testament, the role of the deacon is mainly a servant. The church needs deacons to provide logistic and material support so the elders can focus on the Word of God and prayer. And so the first deacons, they were servants. That's what their role was. They were to serve tables. They were to serve these widows. That is what the goal and the role of a deacon, even in this day and time, is and should be. You see, our deacons do just that. They are not a body that rules. They don't vote on anything. They don't have any special privilege or power that gives them authority over anything, really. They are simply servants of the church, and so they will serve in lots of different ways. They serve by visiting folks in the hospital. They'll, they'll serve by, by meeting physical needs, and uh, physical needs maybe delivering food boxes, which some of them did in this past year. Some of them will, will, like Jeremy said, climb up on a roof and repair a roof in the middle of a, a lightning storm. They meet physical needs of people in situations they cannot do for themselves. And so they'll do those things. They'll meet spiritual needs. They'll be praying for people. They'll be encouraging folks. They'll, they'll send you words of, hey, I'm just praying for you. Is there anything specific that I can pray for you about? And so the role of the deacon is to move the church forward by serving in ways that kind of ne- get neglected sometimes. But the apostles knew that this was such an important task that you don't just assign anybody to do this. You have to have special people to do this. There are certain requirements that we want if we're going to assign these men to this job. So in verse 3, it gives us three requirements of what it takes to be one of these men, to be one of these who's going to serve. And we'll walk through each one of them separately. In verse 3, it says, Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation. Right? Now, there's nothing magic about the number seven, except it is the number of perfection, if you read into all the numbers. But for them, it was this is the number of men it's going to take to do this job. Right? So some churches will have five deacons, some will have two deacons, some will have 15 deacons. It really just depends on how many we need to do this job. And so the apostles thought seven would be a sufficient number. Right? So that's not written in stone. Not every church has to have seven. It's just this is what was needed at that time. And he says, so take seven men, and get, here's the first requirement of good reputation. You see, a good deacon has to have a good reputation, which means they're trusted by the people inside the church. They're someone that you have to have confidence in because if you have to trust them to do what they say they're going to do. I want you to think about it. If they tell you they're going to do something and then they don't do it, 
you don't assign them to do something else. Right? Think about the people you work with or the people you work around. Right? The, the people who get to do more are the ones that you trust to do things. Like If you had a major project at your job and you got to be part of this project, and you say, hey, this guy, he always says he's going to be here early, but he never is. This guy never shows up on time. This guy always waits the last minute or he never does what he's supposed to do. I'm not going to assign him the biggest part of the project. Okay? I'm not going to assign him the biggest part of what's going on. I'm going to push him off to the side as much as I can, utilize him only when I have to, because he doesn't have a good reputation for following through. Right? So we've got to make sure that if these widows are going to be taken care of, if this service is going to happen, we've got to make sure that we have somebody who's going to have a good reputation. They're going to be honest in what they do and what they say. Right? And so now, most time, all of us know that a good reputation is not something that's built overnight. So the apostles are not asking these disciples, which are all the other believers at the time, to pick seven men that they think will do a good job. Pick seven men who are tested that you've seen these men over time be consistently doing what they said they were going to do. They have built a good reputation over time. Now, all of us know reputations take a long time to build, but a very short time to destroy. They can be destroyed overnight. They can be destroyed with one or two bad decisions. And it doesn't take a lot to do that. So if we're going to allow ourselves to, to be a good deacon, whether we are in the role of deacon or not, we've got to understand that good reputation is something we have to protect. And so the challenge for all of our deacons, and especially Josh and, and all of our current deacons, and really everybody sitting here, there's a clear message in this passage, is be careful to guard your reputation. Never allow yourself to be in a compromising situation or never allow yourself to be in a situation where someone else could read something into it. All right? and, and I'm not just saying that just to Josh. I'm not just saying that to our other deacons. I'm going to say that for everybody because I want you to understand what the apostles are saying here very clearly. Is Pick men who you've seen tested and tried over time and you trust them to do this thing. All right? Do that and realize that for all of us, this is the challenge. Be careful of decisions you are making right now because they may affect how God can use you in the future. If you find yourselves in compromising situations, if you allow yourself to be in this compromising situation, guard yourself against those because it may impact your future calling into ministry or future aspect. And suddenly your reputation is scarred and hindered and you can't do what God has called you to do. And I can tell you there's nothing more frustrating for men and women who want to serve and want to do a certain thing in ministry. They can't because there's a certain thing they've done in their past. Their reputation is scarred. And it causes frustration for them. It causes heartache for them. And it hinders what they are trying to do. We're going to read on. That's the first qualification or the requirement is they've got to have a good reputation. The second one in verse 3 he reads on and says, Choose men of good reputation, but it also says they need to be full of the Spirit. All right? They need to be spiritually minded. And I want you to think, if you have tea, a glass of sweet tea, and we had sweet tea last night at the annual celebration. That's the reason, I guess that's where my mind's at. If you've got a glass of sweet tea, any other time it'd be Diet Coke, but sweet tea was what's on my mind all of a sudden. Right? So if you've got a glass of sweet tea, you can very clearly tell if that glass is full, empty, or halfway just by looking at it. Right? If you've got a container of gasoline, right? everybody has gas tanks that you pour into your lawnmower or your four-wheeler or whatever, you can tell when you reach down to grab that thing if it's full or if it's empty or it's halfway. So here's my point I'm trying to make. If something is full, you know it by the fact that it looks different and it feels different. It acts different than things that are empty. 
Okay, So by saying, pick somebody who is full of the Holy Spirit, this is something that needs to be evident by the way people act and the way they treat others. It should be something you can see with your eyes and something you can observe by the way they, they, they act and they behave. Right? So this isn't something spiritual like we've got to connect spirits to see if you're con- No, it's none of that. This should be evident. It should be clear that they are full of the Holy Spirit. In fact, one of the deacons they choose in this passage, is a man named Stephen. Right? And Stephen is significant um, that we read about him later in the story and later in the next chapter. But as they gave this list of deacons uh, in verse 6, um, I'm sorry, verse 5, he's the only one that says to plead the whole crowd, to pick this man full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen is the only one that kind of specifies that he was full of the Spirit. Right? And, and part of the, we, we get further in the story in chapter 6, verse 15, um, he's sitting in front of the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body of the Jews. And basically, Stephen is on trial at this point. Right? So get this idea clearly. We're in verse 6, and he's chosen as a deacon. And by verse 15, he's already in trouble for doing good stuff. Right? So get this, that just because you're a deacon doesn't give you special privileges, doesn't make you exempt from anything. It actually makes life a little bit harder for you. So in verse 15, he's sitting in front of this ruling body who's, who's basically going to judge him. And it says, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him, talking about Stephen, and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, Josh, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I probably wouldn't describe your face as the face of an angel, right? No offense about that. But it's really kind of a play on words because what it's saying here is that it's evident that Stephen has been with God, that he's been in the presence of God. It's evident by his face, right? So they can look at him and know that he's been in the presence of God, that he has spent time with Christ. He's spent time with God. And so being in the presence and the beauty of God overshadows everything else when you're filled with the Spirit. So choose men of good reputation, but choose men that are spiritually minded, that have spent time with God and is so evident that you could see it on their face. And the last one is choose men that are full of Spirit and of wisdom. So they've got to be practically minded, right? Sometimes we have these deacons, and uh, not here, in other places. You have these deacons and, and pastors, they, they can't do anything except read their Bible and pray. They're, they're very spiritual, except they have no wisdom. And we've spent a whole year in the book of Proverbs all about this idea of wisdom. And wisdom is not just head knowledge, it is skilled to do something. So choose these men who have good reputation, who have spent time with God, and because they have spent time with God, they have practicality to them. They can go and do. They can see this need. They can see what happens, or they can see a a solution to the problem. And so this is not exclusive to deacons. This is common for all of us because I want you to see these are the requirements. This is not, hey, you get this once you got to be a deacon. Once we as a church voted for Josh as a deacon, he didn't suddenly become full of the Holy Spirit. He suddenly didn't become full of wisdom. Wisdom, right? He had these things beforehand. These things are available to everyone. Right? And so this is not a result of an election. This is the prerequisite of an election. Right? And so the last thing I want to point out to us is the results. Once you have the role of a deacon, you understand that. You have the right men, the requirements are met, and then you have the right deacons in place. What's the result? And I want to show you in verse 7 what it looks like when all of this works together. And there's three things that happen when you have good deacons in place. And the first one in verse 7 says, So the preaching about God flourished. That's number one. God's word continued to spread. The apostles weren't having to to serve. And and by the way, it doesn't say the apostles stopped serving. Okay, It doesn't say they, they kind of shoved off and they never went to visit the widows. It never says that. It just simply says this was not their primary focus anymore. Right? So they are now able to focus more on their preaching, and the preaching of God flourishes. Right? So that's number one. Number two, you know, it says the number of the disciples in Jerusalem 
multiplied greatly. Right? Now, if you remember back in verse two, it says, or verse one, it says that it was multiplying. But now in verse seven, it's multiplying greatly. It's exponentially multiplying at this point. Right? So the, there are more folks coming to the gospel. Uh, there are more folks that are hearing the gospel. The number in the church is growing exponentially. And listen, it, it, here's the thing I want you to understand. That if you're wanting a church to grow, it's not going to grow because you've got a good pastor. And in your case, it's not going to grow because you've got a bad pastor. Right? For a church to grow, it doesn't take one man standing here in this position. For a church to grow exponentially, for a church to grow rapidly, it takes the folks there where you are at serving Him in whatever role or capacity He's called you to, whether it's to be a deacon or it's to serve in some other way. Right? So don't wait for the pastor and don't wait for the deacons to do it all. You have a part in it as well. And finally in verse 7 it says, A large group of priests also became obedient, or became obedient to the faith. So this third result is that the priests who were Jewish priests, started becoming Christians. These people who, who didn't want anything to do with Christ, these people who didn't want anything to do with Christianity, they suddenly leave their position as priests of one religion and become a Christian. They become obedient to the faith. So people who were hostile to the Christian faith suddenly became Christians, all because they saw the work that the church was doing. Don't you think for just a moment, one of the greatest witnesses of the church is not always to knock on people's door and ask them if they're saved or if they're not. One of the greatest witnesses of a church is not always to leave those little gospel tracts in the bathroom of the men's room and women's room in every restaurant you go to. It's not to slide it to a waitress instead of a tip on a Sunday afternoon when you go out to eat. That's the worst witness of any church, all right? I'm just going to tell you that. One of the best witnesses of any church is that the community sees you caring for the people within your walls and the outside of your walls. And so suddenly these priests, who were all about serving God, said, look at this group of Christians who are serving God by helping other people, who are taking care of these widows, who are, are feeding physically and feeding spiritually these other people. There must be something that's going on here. And so these priests saw what God was doing, and they saw God moving in this group of Christians because Christians were obedient and they were serving, and they said, God must be moved in that direction. Let's go follow this. Let's go seek out this Christ, and let's go seek the difference that Christ is making because we've all been in this ivory tower, this temple, for far too long. And these guys are real. These guys are doing something. And so those who were priests become obedient to the faith. They become obedient and they become Christians as well. They won over not with the words of the, uh, the apostles, but with the actions of the disciples. And so when you have deacons who know their role and they fulfill those requirements, then you have a church that is ready to spread. You have the gospels able to preach. You have the, multiples, uh, the multiplication, the, the exponential growth of the disciples. And you have those who are hostile seeing something different within the church that they can't find even within their own religion. And they start becoming part of it as well. And this is what it looks like to be a deacon. This is what the, the gospel centers tell us. Of This is what a deacon does. This is who a deacon is. And this is the result of having deacons in place. Right? So we're going to follow through with what this tradition is that these men had. Because in verse 6 of the text, sorry, I don't have it. I do have it pulled up on the slide. In verse 6, it says, They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on on them. So we're going to follow through somewhat with that tradition and kind of the Baptist tradition. I'm going to ask Mr. Josh Helms um, and Miss Emily Helms to come and they're going to be seated up front here.